Everybody who listens to futureprimitive.org, I'm happy to be back with you, and I am on the phone with Kimmerer Lamotte, award-winning author, philosopher, and dancer. She is the co-founder of Vital Arts, a center for arts and ideas located on a farm in upstate New York. After earning a doctorate in the study of religion from Harvard University, she spent eight years at Brown and then Harvard Universities teaching writing and dancing. During this time, she received fellowships from the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Studies and the Center for the Study of World Religions. Following a dream, she moved to a farm where she now lives with her partner, their five children, one cat, two hens, two steer, three cows, and a horse named Marvin. Welcome, Kimmerer. (laughs) So much, Donna. (laughs) Um, And I'm holding in my hand your beautiful book, What a Body Knows, Finding Wisdom in Desire. So... I'm going to ask you immediately about this wisdom in desire. There are people who say that desire is unreasonable and and we have to conquer it. So tell us how we find wisdom in desire. Yes, I, that, was the, that was the impetus that got me to re- write this book, was that sense that desire tends to get blamed for pushing us along the wrong path and causing us to do things that we shouldn't do or wouldn't otherwise want to do. And I, when I, as I started thinking about it and drawing on my experience as a dancer, part of what I realized is that desire is basic to our human being. It's, desire is movement. It's a movement inside us, a, an impulse that arises in us to, to move towards something that we think is going to give us the satisfaction we seek. And if we think of desire in that most basic way as this movement, this life-enabling, life-sustaining movement, then it changes our understanding of, of the kinds of specific desires we feel. It also enables us to see how, in contemporary culture, our desires are trained, where our desires are educated. We learn what it is that's going to give us the satisfaction, or we learn what we, what we think is going to get us the satisfaction we want. And part of what I wanted to do in this book is say, we're training our desires in ways that aren't helpful. We're training ourselves in, in what I call this mind-over-body way yes. of thinking and feeling and acting. And as a result, we're unable to, to use our desires, to develop our desires as, really, as, as instruments of discernment, as helping us figure out what it is in our lives that is going to enable our health and well-being. Yes, yes. So when you were speaking, I was thinking about um, ski runs that I've had when I've been able to go up on the mountain 
and just let my body ski or just let my body dance when I go dancing. And I would like you to tell us how we can do that with just everyday life when we get up in the morning. Part of it for me involves um, developing practices of movement. I mean, our bodies are movement. Right? Our bodies are not things that move. Our bodies are movement. They're always moving, beating and breathing and sensing and crackling. And that movement, that movement that we were doing enables us to sense things and know things and feel things and think things. And part of what I talk about in this book and in my work in general is that we need to engage in practices of movement that help us become aware of this of our bodies as this movement. So we need to cultivate a sensory awareness Mm -hmm. so that we can open up a space in ourselves for feeling this movement, for honoring it, and then, then, as you sort of in your opening question, you know, involved, discerning what is it it is it's telling us. Because when we feel a desire for something, we can think that there's, we have to find the wisdom in it. We have to, to rest with it for a moment. We have to open up space inside of ourselves to asking ourselves, what is it that this desire really wants? What is it that we really want here? And I think it, it's at that stage that we have to resist some of the messages we get in contemporary culture that tell us, for example, in our desire for food, that what we yeah. really want is more. Right? Yeah. It's yeah. the quantity of food that's going to give us satisfaction. Or in, in terms of relationships, we, we think it's the quantity of sex that's going to give us the satisfaction. Or even in our spiritual lives, we think that it's the right answer or the right belief system or the right practice or the, 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 the right truth that's going to give us the satisfaction we want. And so what I want to do is to sort of press back on these things and say, okay, well, when we think about those desires which are basic to our lives, our desires for food, our desires for physical intimacy, our desires for a sense of meaning and purpose in our lives, what is it that we really want? And what is it, once we think of ourselves as movement, that will help us find it? See, I think you you say something really, well, many, many things, but you say something really beautiful in your book. You, you, in the beginning, you say, uh, the mind is an instrument of the body. And we are kind of brainwashed to think that the body is an instrument of the mind. So if the mind is an instrument of the body, isn't there a fear of losing control if uh, one relies on the body to create the mind? Yes, exactly. Uh, There is that fear. And part of what I want to do is move away from a mind versus body way of thinking about ourselves. Okay. I mean, a lot of people are trying to do this, but... Um, it, it, cause I don't believe that we can flip the situation and say, okay, we should always, our bodies should tell our minds what to do. But we need to realize that we are bodies. Our minds are part of our bodies. Our minds are, uh, dimensions or aspects of our bodily selves that help, that are designed, right, that, that, that sort of work in order to help that bodily self make better decisions about how to move, how to move towards what's going to give us uh-huh. nourishment and pleasure and away from what is not. So our minds are so great, right? They're so great at so many things. And what, what they can do is remember, right? They remember yes, our experience yeah. and they predict. They predict what's going to happen. And so we're constantly doing this flip-flop back from remembering the past to predicting the future to try to figure out what it is, how to make the moves that we're going to make in our lives. But what, what's happened in contemporary culture is that that movement of our mind has become separated from the movement of our bodies. So we tend to think, in terms of trying to figure out how to move in our lives, we look outside of ourselves. 
rather than allowing our body, rather than not turning inward per se, but opening up to sense what it is our bodies are experiencing in any given moment or time. So you, uh, Kimura, are a dancer and a philosopher. Yes. How do you intertwine those two things in your life? Yes, it's a, it's um, it's been a very crooked path, right? <laughs> because for the longest time, I tried to choose. I thought I had to choose. I had to do one or the other, and so I would go back into the dance world, and then back to studying religion and philosophy, and then back to the dance world, and. I wasn't happy in either realm because in the dance world, as I was practicing dance, I was strengthening my body and developing this kind of techniques and expressive style. And in, but I, it wasn't engaging my mind in the way that my mind was hungry to be engaged. And yet, when I was doing my scholarship, my body was feeling very restless and mm -hmm. and and disconnected from what I was doing. So I basically had to find a way to entwine the two on a daily level, you know, at the level of practice. And then when I be, as I began to do that, I also began to realize that my, my, my practice as a dancer, which is really my core, I mean, yeah. as, as, you know, that was incredibly generative of ideas that I felt from my study of religion and philosophy that our culture really needed to hear. And so I've actually found that the more I study in philosophy and religion, the more it commits me to dance, and the more I dance and explore what dancing has, the kind of knowledge, the kind of unique knowledge you can get from dance, the more I feel like I have to offer as a philosopher. Wow. Yes, absolutely. So, um, if you will, um, let's talk about emotions and... Um, you have this phrase that's very beautiful that says, let your emotions run into the earth. Yes. Would you talk to us about that? Yes. I mean, emotions are very strong. Emotion, right? They move us. They're movements inside of us as well, a different kind of, um, of movement that can be very strong and very powerful and, and also um, illuminate the kinds of, concerns or feelings that we have. Let me say it this way. Oftentimes, when we have a desire for something, we will feel that desire in the shape of an emotion. We will feel it as a frustration or an irritation or um, a longing or a sadness or a depression. I mean, I'm talking about sort of the negative ways we tend to feel desire. We can also feel it as an excitement or an anticipation. And all of these different emotions are coming out of a desire that we have. And so part of what I talk about in my work is that the mm -hmm. first thing we need to do is to be aware of these emotions and aware of the fact that they're expressing a desire. So even in relationship to my partner, my beloved partner, when I feel a surge of irritation right, mm -hmm. at him, yeah. it's really because I desire him. I, at that moment, I want something from him. I want to feel closer to him. Mm -hmm. I want to feel more connected to him. Right? So, so part of what I want to say, what I want to help people do is to be able to sort of open up their emotions, and to sit with their emotions, rest with their emotions, open them up and find the desire at the core. And I find that practices of bodily movement, when we move our bodies 
in ways that we're cultivating the sensory awareness. So we're moving with our breath and allowing our breath to move us. We can open up a space in ourselves for feeling that feeling, feeling those emotions, and then allowing ourselves to honor the desire at the core. So I feel this irritation and it's driving me crazy. Mm -hmm. But let me take a moment, let me just breathe and let me find, okay, what is the desire at the core here? And once I do that and I sort of give the, the emotion back to my bodily self, all of a sudden, and I connect with the power of that desire, all of a sudden, new possibilities for moving in the situation appear. Mm. And it's just, I mean, it's, it's uncanny the way it happens, but it works, I think, because I think our bodies are meant to do this. Our bodies, our bodies are, you know, our, our, our ways of guiding and directing us towards what is going to enable our health and well-being. So they always want you, just like as you're talking about skiing down the mountain or when you're dancing, like you can be skiing down the mountain and you can feel a pinch or something in your back or your shoulder and you take a breath and huh, all of a sudden your body sorts itself out somehow. And yeah. if you give to that, give, give yourself to that body in that moment, it finds the connection that it needs to make that movement work. Mm-hmm. And I think that happens not just on a physical level, it happens on an emotional level, an intellectual level, a spiritual level, and it happens in relationship to our bodily selves, it happens in relationship to the other important people in our life with whom we have relationships, it happens in relationship to, a, to um, our relation to the natural world. So part of what I want to do is open up this resource for us. Yes, yes. Which I would like to uh, go back to uh, what you said about uh, some seconds ago, talking about when you feel a tinge in your body and then you breathe, it might relieve it or it does relieve it. Here you say, you talk about how to move in, in ways that will not recreate pain. So in the sense that uh, sometimes we think that if we just don't move, even the emotional pain, you know. Right. So could you speak about that, the sanity that allows us to move in ways that don't recreate yeah. pain? Yes. Well, even just picking up on what you said, maybe the, I think pain is a huge issue in our culture. Right. I feel that... In reality, at its most sort of basic level, we're run by fear. Mm-hmm. We're afraid of pain. We don't want to feel pain. You know, there, there's one sort of aspect of our culture which is sort of no pain, no gain. You got to push through it and do it. But it's but, a mind over body kind of way yeah, of dealing yeah. with pain. And and the the, the the but the most sort of dominant one is, is this fear of pain. We really don't want to feel pain. If we feel pain, we just want it to go away. We want it to go away as quickly as possible, and we've gotten, we've developed all kinds of ways of making our pain go away. We've got great pain-killing drugs, we've got great kind of narcotics, we've got great forms of entertainment and distraction and ways of, of numbing ourselves to our pain. But, but so, so I, I, I've had to deal with that fear um, in, in, in my work, and what I, what I want, help, want to help people see is that pain, once we think of our bodies as movement, the pain is a signal, uh, as, a way of, as a way that our bodily cells have, have of communicating to us that the patterns of movement that we're engaged in are not as helpful as they could be. That, or to say it a different way, every pain is a potential for pleasure that is yet to unfold. Like I, I believe that in my life and in myself, and I practice that. When I feel pain, I wait and I stop to say, okay, what is the potential for pleasure here that is yet to unfold? 
And if I want to find that, I need to allow myself to feel the pain, to feel it, to not not to sort of. Um, I, I'm not. I'm not involved in. I, I don't like pain. I'm not involved in seeking suffering. Yeah, yeah, of course. But but in order to honor our sensory selves, to realize that there is in that pain an impulse that's going to help us stop it, and that we do need to that that we can help ourselves out of the pain by allowing ourselves a moment to listen to it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So part of. Um, Part of the practice then becomes, becomes realizing that, for example, if we're trying to do something and we feel pain, that that, that, that pain isn't an obstacle. It will it'll present itself as an obstacle, and it's not an obstacle, but it's actually a pathway, right? It's actually going to help us learn what other movements there are to make that will enable the, me to, do, to, to um, find the health and well-being I seek. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm going to ask you a personal question because I think this uh, matter of fear is uh, of utmost importance. So I want to ask you, um, how have you transformed, lived with, found pleasure rather than fear? Yes, well, it's an ongoing practice. Yes. <laughs> I mean... I feel in my own self that the more I cultivate the sensory awareness of movement, that the more I feel. And feelings are big, and they're powerful, and they require attention. And so it's a practice that involves, um, it, it involves a couple of different things. On the one hand, as sort of I was just suggesting, it involves helping myself think about it in ways. So there is some a dimension of talking to myself, right, and, and allowing myself to, to feel the desire in the fear. I mean, I guess that's the first big thing. If I'm afraid of something, if I'm afraid, oftentimes it's because I want something positively. So I'm, a, I'm, I'm afraid that so-and-so is not going to like my book, right? yes. or so-and-so is going to laugh at me for something I've done. Then, then I, I allow, I honor that fear, and then I think, okay, that's because I have this desire. I want that person to like my book. I want my person, mm-hmm. you know. So I, I connect with my desire, and then you affirm that. Like, my desire is good, right? It's good to desire. It's good to want to share your work. It's good to want to be out there in the world. And so how is it, then, that you allow yourself to move with that impulse rather than the fear? And once you do that, then you can think of things of, of, of you, then, then you find some freedom, or, or it's what I call sort of finding the play in the moment. Um, the yeah. play, meaning yeah. the sort of room to maneuver, the, the creativity that's sort of present in every moment of our lives. What can I create out of this? And so what kind of movements can I create out of this? How can I, how can I let go, in some ways, of my attachment to a particular end yes. and allow myself to honor the desire and move with it in, in however I can? Okay. But I think that fear, fear comes up constantly because every time you make a new move, you... Uh, oh, I've got a great example, actually. Okay. Um, it has to do with um, home birth. Because I had... Um, when we moved here, I was pregnant with my fourth child. And I had, I had planned to give birth in a hospital with midwives, as I had done in Boston. But my uh, first son was a cesarean section. So I went to the midwife here and I said, I'm sorry, but in our small regional hospitals, we can't give you a vaginal birth after cesarean. We can't allow you to have a, a normal birth. You have to have another C-section. Okay. And I didn't want to have another C-section. That C-section was 
horrible. Yeah. I didn't want another one. I had had two great births since then, and I wanted another one of those. Of course. So it required. So I. So here I was, and I, we moved when I was nine months pregnant. I mean, there wasn't much room to maneuver, and I had to figure out, okay, how am I going to uh, to how am I going to find a move to make here? And um, I, you know, I, I realized that when I sort of got down and into it, you know, I'd always really wanted a home birth, but I'd always been a little bit afraid. Mm-hmm. And so I had to face this fear. And um, part of how, how I did it was that I realized that the fear, you know, where was the fear coming from? The mm-hmm. fear was coming mm-hmm. from a desire mm-hmm. to do the best thing I possibly could for myself and for the baby to come and for our family as a whole. Mm-hmm. I wanted to create the best possible situation for us all to thrive. And so what was that going to be? And I could try to, you know, to calculate all these risks and I could try to um, read all the, the stories of what could go wrong. And, and there were people in my life who were sending me messages saying, please don't have a home birth and everything can go wrong and <laughs> you're taking this huge, horrible risk. And, I, I, and so I would feel that sting and that sting of fear. And then I said, okay, this fear is inviting me to go deeper inside of myself to find the strength that I need to really make this happen. Wow. The gift in the fear. Yeah. Right. So did you have a home birth? I did. I, I had two, actually. I had another one after that. Beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah. Okay. So since we're talking about birth and children, let's go to the part in your book where you talk about the importance of touch. Yeah. I just think that is, that is important. Yeah. I do. I think, I think as, a, as a culture, we're... we're, we're just beginning to reconnect with how important that is. I feel like touch is, is absolutely fundamental. I feel like it's it's the mechanism of healing, the expression of love, the the connection that opens us up to the divine, the uh, most basically it's the kind of sensory uh, messages that we need in order for our brains to fully develop. <laughs> so p- part of what I... Um, do I talk about touch when I'm talking about the desire for sex? So, in insofar as we think about sex as kind of a technical matter that we we um, of 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 engaging in a way that allows us for a release, um, then sex becomes sort of a mind. We, we approach sex as a mind over body in a in a mind over body way. So I either can have sex or I cannot have sex. Um, and sex is something I choose to do. It can express love or it cannot express love, but sex is just itself sex. And so part of what I want to say is that that what happens if we open up and think about, well, first of all, I should say that way of thinking about sex is so instrumentally leads to all kinds of problems um, with issues of control and, and, and satisfaction and, and a, a kind of explosion of sort of sexual behaviors that, I think, express the deep dissatisfaction that, most, that many people are feeling with sex. It's, mm-hmm. it's when you can't get the sex that you want that you go looking for it in all kinds of virtual and vicarious ways. Mm-hmm. So what is it that we really want that we want sex when we want sex? And so I, then I, I opened that conversation then up in terms of touch. And what is, what is the kind of touch that is involved? It really is a life-enabling touch. It's a... And... and and that, so the importance, so, so, so how about then we shift our understanding of what sex 
we, when we think of sex, and we, what if we thought about it as that what it is we're desiring is to create a relationship in which we can give and receive a life-enabling touch. Yes, yes. And you write this beautiful phrase, we exist by the grace of relationships. So I'm yes. just going to la- ask you to launch yourself into that one and uh, tell our good people what you mean by that. Yes. I feel that it, it is, we live by the grace of, of the relationships. And I, I, I actually, um, the book that, I, ha- I have a new book coming out this month, actually, called, called Family Planting, where I actually go into that further yes. and, and more, in more detail, talking about our relationship to our, our parents, and our partners, and then our progeny, our children, or our projects that we're creating. Um, and and part of what I what I've come to as I sort of cultivated this this understanding of ourselves, this movement, is that we humans are who we are by virtue of the relationships we create with those people who enable us to be. And we are relationships, and we are creating relationships way before we ever say I, think I, act as an individual in our world. And I think we thrive as humans based on our ability to create the kind of relationships we need to support us in our unfolding. Different individuals need different relationships. Some people need one relationship. Some people need many. Some people need relationships with animals or plants. Or I mean, there are all different kinds of relationships. I don't want to put it in a, put that sort of category in a box. But we all, we exist, we are relational creatures through and through. We're not things that relate to other people or things or, or elements or aspects of the world, but we are who we are because of the relationships that we're in. And so in terms of a partner relationship, I think part of what it is, is can be true in that relationship is that the kind of touch that partners exchange is a touch which goes to the heart of what, who they are, enabling them to be who they are. I think that's why we choose our partners. I think we, we choose partners to be with us, to accompany us on the path of, of life, because when we meet them, something comes alive in us that yes. we didn't, that we weren't aware of before, that we mm-hmm. didn't know before. We didn't have that experience of ourselves before, that experience of the enlivening and opening of ourselves. And so we want more of it. We want more of the partner, yes, but we want more of what the partner wakes up in us. <laughs> and so we, we, we gravitate towards that partner then and we create a relationship and the relationship works when the touch that is given and, re- and, and exchange, that is given and received um, continues along that path of opening us up to more of who we are as individuals. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's this incredibly deep paradox that's involved, in, in particular in a partner relationship, because it's a chosen relationship, and it's a relationship that we cultivate consciously, is that there's this potential for that the more we give ourselves to the relationship, the more the relationship opens in us to be the individuals who we are. Mm-hmm. And I, I kind of, I mean, that's, it's kind of a mystery and in some ways it seems really simple, but, but I really wanted to figure out how does this work? You know, how is it that it really works? And why, and what, what happens when it doesn't work? Because there are lots of times when it doesn't work. And oftentimes it doesn't work because of some of those issues we were talking about before. Fear, right? We open up, we experience something that we really want and that we really love, and all of a sudden we're afraid we're not going to get it. 
Yes. And as soon as we're afraid we're not going to get it, we close off little spaces of ourselves. And for the relationship, we begin to hold ourselves back. And when we do that, we close sensory spaces through which our passion flows. And so we begin to feel less and less in the context of the relationship, even though we're doing it for the relationship, just because we're afraid we might not get what we want, which is the relationship itself. (laughs) You say, trust that the desire binding you to another is setting you free. Yeah. Yeah. So it's hard. It's hard. It's not yes, easy. it's it's very hard, but yeah. um let's go to Nietzsche. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> and that beautiful uh phrase uh how to remain faithful to the earth. Yes. And uh I'd like you to both uh, mix the um, the body movement and the fact that uh, you live on a farm with animals. Yes. It's, it's good for you for making that connection because it does mean both of those to me. Yeah. When I think of remaining faithful to the earth, I think of remaining faithful to the body of the earth and to our bodies of earth. Mm. I think we are part of the earth. And we have a responsibility that goes with that membership. Mm-hmm. And so remaining faithful to it, for me, means practicing this, this kind of sensory awareness that I've been describing, where we actually open to honor the wisdom in our desires, the wisdom in our bodily selves. And that we, that we also realize that those impulses that are arising in us are our expressions of relationship so that there's you know I, I was talking about desire as if it's just something that arises within an individual as that individual's feeling or emotion but once we start thinking of our body as these porous and relational patterns of movement then we realize that everything that we're experiencing and feeling and thinking and intuiting is an expression of the relationships that we are creating at that very moment, with the earth, with mm. the context in which we live, with our own bodily selves. Mm. So remaining faithful to the earth, then, means, um, you know, wanting and, and it means orienting our, and aligning ourselves so that we are participating in the creation or the becoming of a, a planet, a world, an earth, that is capable of sustaining life, sustaining our life. <laughs> right, right. I think it's one of the ironies of, of, of human existence that in, insofar as we think of ourselves as living in, living on the planet or living in the earth, as um, David Abram talks about in his work, living in the earth, that, that um, we, we uh, are killing our host. <laughs> we're we're, we're, we're engaged in practices now that are, are causing us to pollute and to destroy the very complex, intricate network of relationships that have given rise to our very life. Uh-huh. And so, I mean, that, that's, in, in some ways, that's the definition of insanity, right? Yes. <laughs> Your cat would never do that, right? <laughs> you know? And so, so how is it that, that we then first become aware that, that that's what we're doing, and then, then take responsibility for the, I mean, I think that the way that I think about it is that, you know, as humans, our, our responsibility on this planet 
is to make sure that the conditions that enabled our life continue. And so it's, it's, it's sort of an essentially selfish kind of way of thinking because we want the planet to enable us. Yes. And yet it's a wholeheartedly unselfish way of thinking because what enables us, given that we're these relational movement creatures, is the network, you know, the, the whole ecosystem yeah. of which we're a part. Well, you must have, uh, and forgive me for speaking like that, but you must have great faith in the fact that our relationship with the earth is going to, or us of us being the earth is going to uh, come into more harmony because you have five recent children. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I... I I, when I see them, I do get great hope. You know, I, 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 they, they, when I watch them grow, and, and you did ask about being on the farm here, and, and part of what, part of the dream that, that impelled Jeff, my partner, and I to move here was that we wanted to be able to be in a place where we were more exposed, more vulnerable to the rhythms of the natural mm. world where we could do our work in closer proximity to the cycles of the day and the months and the seasons and the year. And um, our children wanted this for us, but for different reasons. They wanted animals. They wanted just places to create and build the things that they wanted to create and build. And since we've moved here, they are the ones who've become the farmers. Mm. They are the ones who have really pushed Jeff and me to reconsider our own relationship to the natural world as being something much more than just, oh, that's a beautiful landscape, <laughs> but what kind of relationship can I create with this landscape that will enable it to thrive and me as well? So my son Jordan, for example, he's 15, and he soon after we moved here, he decided, and that was when he was 10, he decided he needed to have a cow. He just, he needed to, this was his idea, it didn't come from us, he was crying on the floor, fetal position, mom, I need a cow, otherwise my life will not be the same. <laughs> it took, it took him about four months to convince us, really. I mean, I first, my first day, I bought him some books about how to raise a cow and what was required, thinking, okay, when he realizes what's involved here, he's not going to want to do it. Mm -hmm. But that even made him more excited about it. So we, we connected with a local 4-H group and we found a couple of cows in the in the neighborhood that we could take and, and, and look at and he ended we ended up buying him a cow and that was the beginning of our of our farming here. We and and he and his two sisters now milk two cows uh, twice a day. They do the chores. He's he's got a pair of, of um, steers that he's training his oxen and he just bought a plow that he's gonna he's training his steers to use this plow because he wants to grow wheat and oats and I mean so that my children really enabled by us but going far beyond us well wow. along the lines of the kinds of values and beliefs that have brought us here mm -hmm. are really working to create what they think will be a sustainable way a sustainable future so that does give me hope <laughs> yes that's uh, that's amazing I mean the, the idea that um, if you offer real to real <laughs> <laughs> it yeah. will want the real, yeah. I mean, so let's go a moment to religion or not religion, yeah. and uh, in your book, and this uh, phrase that uh, is, is important to me, which is 
what it is that our beliefs and practices are enabling us to become, since yeah. we are in becoming in movement, or in the movement of becoming. Yes. Yes. As a sort of when I in my scholarship as an academic, I'm really a, a scholar of religion. So I spent a lot of years trying to think about religion and what it is and what's its role and value in our lives. And part of where I've come to, specifically in studying sort of the, the Western traditions, is that if we, if we want to think about a religion, it, it, we can think about it in terms of patterns of movement. That it's, they're patterns of both their beliefs, which are patterns of thinking that are often expressed as stories and then sometimes as different doctrines or ideas. Mm-hmm. And if we, if we engage in those patterns of thinking, we move our minds in certain kind of ways. And there also in religion are patterns of moving our bodily selves. There are pa- patterns of rituals and their practices. And so all of these movements enable something to happen. They enable a transformation. And insofar as we engage in the, in, the, in, in the particular patterns and learn the particular patterns that a given religion is offering us, we experience that transformation or not. Right? We experience something happens to us. If we start thinking about God as love, then maybe we feel something that we've never felt. And that feeling that we feel, when we start to make the movements of that belief and the movements of those rituals and practices, lead us to believe that that belief is true. Lead us to believe that it opens up something inside of us because it is true for us, because it's enabling us mm-hmm. to become mm-hmm. in this way that we want it to become, that, that, um, you know, that, that seems to be expressing something that needs to unfold inside of ourselves. Mm-hmm. And I think the danger we have with religion in our sort of mind-over-body way of thinking is that religion is about the truth. It's about finding the right, uh, the, the right uh, viewpoint, which then becomes true for everyone. And it's about doing the right practice that is going to be the best practice. And we put our faith in the practice or in the idea rather than allowing ourselves to honor religion as a kind of technology, right? as, a, as a kind of, as these patterns of movement that human beings have developed and practiced over years that can enable humans to develop capacities and sensibilities that they wouldn't otherwise have had. I think religion's incredibly powerful technology. Like, you can go and wow. you can study gymnastics, and you can become an amazing expert at walking along the balance beam and doing these these different. I mean, that's a capacity that human that some humans have, mm-hmm. all humans to some extent, to yeah. to unfold. And I think religion taps a certain kind of capacity in human beings. It's a capacity to uh, to create the worlds in which they live, to to make patterns of movement that allow them to think and to feel and to act in particular kinds of ways. And so I think religion is unique in its, in its capacity to act, exercise this in us. Let's talk about your next book. We're slowly coming around here. Yeah. And I'd uh, love you to talk about family planting. Oh, thank you. I, um, First of all, it's coming out this, uh, it'll, it's coming out this month, yeah, right? Yeah, it is. You know, within the next few days, it's available soon on, on uh, websites and, 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 and bookstores around the country. Okay. Um, June 24th is Friday is actually the official release date. Great. Um, you know, after we moved here, 
you know, a dream is a wonderful thing. And once you begin to act on a dream, it, it, it starts to grow and change in ways that you didn't expect. <laughs> and once we moved here to the farm, um, our reasons for being here and our visions for what we were doing began to change. And one of the things that we realized was that if we were going to make it work here on the farm, that we really were going to need to recreate our relationships. <laughs> like that I needed to recreate my relationships with my parents in particular and that Jeff and I needed to recreate our relationship and that we were, needed to recreate the relationship with the children. And, and, and so what family planting, if family planting is about, our, basically it tells stories from our first three years on the farm that focus on the relationships um, in our family and what we've learned about how to make moves, how to make new moves in these relationships that allow us to live in love. So it's our discovery, our exploration about what love in a family can be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And as I'm, as I'm um, also, you know, being the philosopher and dancer that I am, as I'm telling these stories, part of what I'm doing is trying to also engage ways of thinking about these relationships that are sort of common sense in our culture and then help us think about them in a new way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's again, it's uh, the kind of kind of a dance between relationship and the place in which relationships are happening. Yes. Yeah. Yes, very much. And I really, I develop in so, in some ways. What a body knows is about how a practice of bodily movement or cultivating the sensory awareness of ourselves as movement can open up new ways of moving in relationship to our own desires. New. And family planting is about how cultivating this sense of awareness can open up new ways of moving in relationship to the primary people in our lives. Mm. And so being here on the farm is very is, is completely integral to that. I mean, one way I think about it is when I came here to the farm, I found that my senses began to open in a way that they hadn't when I was living close in a more urban environment Mm -hmm. and as my senses began to open more and more and I I I cultivated that I was also able to feel sort of these sort of tremors of dissatisfaction or irritation in places and in these relationships that they weren't quite working the way that I felt that they wanted to Mm -hmm. but at the same time I was also able to find resources for bringing to bear on these relationships because again of this sort of open sensory awareness so it's sort of our experience becomes then um, a, a, an example or a possibility for the, the kinds of ways that people, wherever they live and in whatever kinds of relationships they find themselves, can also find resources for moving in those relationships in a way that will enable them to learn and unfold their own capacity to love. Beautiful. I want to give you um, a sentence by Kimmerer, and it says... Hug until you feel like singing. So that's yes. is that good advice for for family planting? <laughs> oh, that's a good question. <laughs> uh, um, yes. Okay. <laughs> I would like to um, ask you now: What would you like to say in closing to our friends at Future Primitive? I just want to affirm that there is so much good work that is going on now with people trying to open their consciousness to bringing in, to realizing a, a, a more earth-friendly way of being in this world. 
and I feel that as part of that, that that that, that the, the the power of our of the movement in our bodily selves to uh, open up ways of thinking and feeling and acting can enhance this 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 movement and and contribute to it. And so I would just encourage um, people to explore that way of thinking and being. All right, all right. Well, thank you very, very much for giving us uh, your time, your movement, and your thoughts. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. Good. Future Primitive is made possible by the Marion Institute. If you enjoy these podcasts, please consider supporting our work by making a tax-deductible contribution online at futureprimitive.org.